of that great truth and that great um, love and grace of the Lord. Take your Bible, if you will, and take turn with me, Genesis chapter 1. This morning, we're going to finish up our series, the Faith and Culture series that we've been working through for the past five Sundays. Today is going to be our sixth and final message, and we're going to speak to the subject of the environment. And uh, I hope you're excited about this, as I am. I was going to make a little joke, but I'm going to pause and wait on the joke for a little bit later. But, you know, environmentalism is one of those hot topic issues and hot topic areas. I mean, if we hear the word or the term global warming or the Green New Deal, if we hear someone talking about climate change or somebody's talking about conservation, all of those terms can quickly divide a room. I mean, all of us kind of align on one side or the other. Very few people shoot right down the middle with those terms and with those ideas. And so surprisingly, the environment is controversial. I mean, you think about that. Why would it be controversial? We love the environment. We need the environment. It's important to us. I mean, I think we can all agree that without the environment as it is, we would not be here today. And yet it's highly controversial because we all have opinions. I'm an opinionated guy. I bet if we went around the room, polled the people who are watching us online, we would all be opinionated people and with an opinion when it comes to the environment. And so we're divided in our culture today over this issue. I would add that we're divided to some extent within the church on this issue. We have varying opinion, opinions when it comes to the issue of the environment. Gordon Wilson wrote a book not long ago, I think it came out maybe last year or the year before, uh, a book entitled A Different Shade of Green. And in this book he shares four perspectives perspectives or four particular stereotypes, perhaps, in the church when it comes to this issue of environment. So I want to share these stereotypes with you. I'm going to share what he wrote about these areas. And first of all, he, he identifies what he calls the anti-green Andy. Anti-green Andy. His position is held primarily in his gut rather than in his head. His beliefs are embedded in a deep personal conviction of mankind's dominion over creation, private property rights, as well as American individualism. He believes that God made us in His image and put us in charge over all creation. Therefore, we are to fill, up with, fill it up with us, using or discarding whatever is in our way. We should develop, consume, and exploit the earth's resources with little to no concern for cultivating and beautifying them for future generations, such that they thrive and become more glorious under our care. Andy Green, Andy is deathly afraid to be associated with anything an environmentalist may hold dear, so he defaults to contrarian positions on all environmental concerns. He sees their silly excesses, their spin of the data, their wrong-headed thinking, and ridiculous, heavy-handed governmental regulations, but doesn't want to differentiate between the baby and the bathwater. So that's anti-green Andy. The second stereotype he mentions is pre-mill Pete. Pre-mill Pete thinks God only cares about our spiritual state. Getting people saved is all that really matters. He thinks our bodies are necessary to hand out gospel tracts and, and our living environment is God's contemporary provision to keep our earthly tents propped up while we evangelize during this fleeting tenure on earth. 
There's no need to concern ourselves with the state of the physical creation because in the end, it's all going to burn with fervent heat. We just need to get people saved before the rapture. Once we're off this rock, we can live forever in our heavenly dwelling. That's pre-mill Pete. Now, next to Auntie Green Andy and pre-mill Pete is apathetic April. Apathetic April hasn't really thought about the environment much at all. She just exists. She eats, she sleeps, she works, she Facebooks, she watches movies, and she goes to church. She has a vague notion that we're to be good stewards, though she really has no clue what that means. Maybe it means that she should recycle. Next to apathetic April is Green Greta. Now, Green Greta claims that Christians are supposed to be good stewards. That means uber green. Everything she eats is 100% organic and gluten-free. GMOs are from the pit of hell. She recycles every conceivable thing. She's a global warming alarmist and therefore is guilt-ridden about exhaling exhaling carbon dioxide and driving her car. She attempts to atone for her carbon footprint sins by acquiring eco-indulgences. They include driving a hybrid car, shopping at the co-op, walking to work, that is when she's not late, and taking quick, lukewarm showers. She also also plans to have 1.7 kids. She votes for every green politician and gets more upset at the death of endangered animals than abortion because, after all, endangered animals are rare while people are not. Now, if you think about those four stereotypes, we look around the typical church today and you find those four stereotypes. We don't want to be any of those stereotypes. That's the one I'm going to try to to show you this morning as we talk about the environment from a biblical standpoint is that that is not what we want to be. There has to be a better option, a more biblical perspective for us as God's people. So like the other cultural issues that we've talked about, the environment is another area of deep division within America. We're fighting for who we are. We're fighting for the soul of, of America. We're fighting for who we're going to be. And so as we look at the environment, we know that it's, it's politically an issue every single year, especially in election years. We know that it's controversial as we begin to talk with friends and family and, and, and figure out where they're coming from. We know that we don't always see eye to eye. And so it can sway us and, and, and cause us to, to perhaps think differently. It can cause us and sway us to not even address the issue. What I want to do is with the other issues is to help us to think biblically. We need to look at this issue through not through the lens of culture, but through the lens of Scripture. What does the Bible say about our involvement, our engagement with the environment? And so let's talk about that this morning. I want us to see that God offers a better design when it comes to this issue that is so controversial. Can we agree this morning that whether you're green or not green, hopefully some of us have green thumbs. Anybody say you're a good gardener? You, you, you like to garden, you like flowers, you, you've got vegetables growing right now and you're trying to keep them alive in this soaring heat. Yeah, some of us have green thumbs but you may not be green. But whether or not you have a green thumb or whether or not you're green or non-green, I think we can agree that the planet and the care of the planet is important. Our reason for doing so is what is in question. Why are we, or why do some people, identify themselves as being green and the other, the anti-green, and whatever the stereotype there is, why do we 
align in certain areas on this issue. It comes down to what is the reason behind the care of the planet. Uh, Many non-Christians, I I believe, have really no justification for their desire to care for the planet. There's a lot of non-Christians out there in the culture today that care for the planet. They want to care for the environment. They want to take care of, of, of little things here and there and big things here and there. And they want to make sure that we have something to pass on to the next generation. But when it comes down to their rationale for that, their reason for that, I don't believe that they have a good justification for their desire to care for the planet. And this is why. According to the evolutionist E.O. Wilson, the reason we should care for the planet is because we have an intense self-interest. Listen to what he said. He says, it follows that human self-interest is best served by not overly harming the other life forms on earth that still survive. And so what E.L. Wilson is saying here is that the reason, the number one reason for him to care for the environment is self-preservation. We want to care for the environment so that we can survive. So we want to take care of the ozone layer. We want to take care of the oxygen. We want to not cut down the rainforest so that we have oxygen. We don't want to dirty the oceans so, because it affects everything. We don't want to burn fossil fuels because the, the, the allegation is, is that they cause global warming, which de, the defrosts the polar caps and then raises the floods or the oceans and everything floods, and, and it goes on and on from there. So it comes down for the, to the reason of self-preservation. And so when you think about that idea of self-preservation, does it fly with the teaching and the theory and the principles laid out in evolution? I would argue that it does not. The evolutionary perspective, which most non-Christians do hold, is actually antithetical to evolution. See, the key doctrine in the evolutionary theory is the survival of the fittest. Naturalistic, this naturalistic worldview teaches that the fittest will survive. And so, how about that? As life forms experience increasing pressures from conditions within the environment, the strongest, according to evolution, will evolve and survive. The evolutionary environmentalists here interject, though, a subjective, higher moral value. So rather than considering everything the same, these evolutionist environmentalists interject this moral value to human life that we should do things to protect the environment so that we can survive when evolution would teach that if we're the fittest, we're going to survive or a human race will continue. So this theory of evolution places then no more worth on humanity than it would dirt or bacteria, but that's not what these environmentalists are teaching. As John Upchurch states, if we accept atheism, a burned-out planet is no worse than a fruitful one. It's just what is. But these environmentalists seek to care for the planet simply so that they might survive. Self-preservation, which is interjecting the subjective moral value to human life. Now, another reason for them to care for the planet revolves around climate change. Some scientists claim that human activities like cutting trees and burning fossil fuels are causing the earth to warm. Those scientists, along with the news media, typically use any and all natural disasters as proof of global warming. This climate change that's getting worse day by day by day, which is causing all of these different natural disasters. And so they sound the alarm and they demand that we must go green for the good of the environment. Again, 
This alarm is nothing more than self-preservation, which goes against the very foundational theory upon which they build their premise. They build their lives. They build this idea. And so as a Christian, here's a question that we need to wrestle with this morning. Should I care about the planet and the environment? Wrestle with that for a second. Should I really care? Does it make a difference if I have any concern whatsoever about the planet? Does it make a difference that I care at all about the environment? Does it make a difference what I do or don't do? I believe the answer to this question is a simple yet profound yes. It is important that we care for the planet and care for the environment. We should care for these things, but not for the same reason as the atheistic evolutionary environmentalists so prevalent within our culture today. You see, we should care for the environment because our God created it, and here's what we're going to look at this morning. He entrusted it to us for its care. We care for the planet not because we want to preserve our lives. We don't care for the planet so that it preserves someone else's life. We don't care for the planet because we feel guilty about doing certain things. We need to care for the planet because God created it, therefore he owns it, and he's entrusted it to us as human beings to steward, to manage, and to care for it. So our responsibilities as stewards is simply to work and to beautify what God has created. Look with me, Genesis chapter 1. Let's begin in the very, very beginning there in verse 1. The Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Skip down to verse 28. Five days of creation or six days of creation have happened. At this point, we're in day six of creation. After every single day of what God has created, he, de- he declares over it, it's good, it's good, it's good. Now on day six, he's going to say this is very good. But look what he says, verse 28. And God blessed them, speaking of Adam and Eve, the man and the woman. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Turn the page to chapter 2, look at verse 15. Then God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Throughout this series, we've spent a lot of time in Genesis, and I've been making a statement that I'm going to make again. If we get Genesis wrong, we get life wrong. See, if we get Genesis wrong and the understanding of life itself, then there's no value on human life, which means that when we come to the issue of race, there's no value there that would check our selfishness and our sinfulness. When we get Genesis wrong and we come to the idea of sexuality, we get that wrong and how it plays itself out in gender issues and and sexual issues and all the things that we struggle with in our culture. Genesis speaks to everything that we experience in life from the very beginning of the Bible. It begins to chart the path that we should take. So we need to make sure we get Genesis right so that other things in our life we will potentially get right. It's no different from the first five issues as it is for the issue of the environment this morning. As we began this series, we did begin with the issue of life, and we discovered that life has intrinsic and eternal value. Why? Because God created us in the image and likeness of God. In other words, there's something of the divine within humanity doesn't mean you're God, it doesn't mean I'm God, but there's something God-like within us. And so we bear His image, we, we 
glorify, we uh, reflect his image in this creation as we, as his steward, lead and manage on his behalf. So this understanding of the value of human life provides this foundation by which we're able to address all of these issues and even the issue we're talking about this morning. You see, God has entrusted the stewardship of his creation to humanity. And so let me give you three truths regarding the environment. And then I'm going to come back as I've been doing uh, most every Sunday recently and give you some application how that should work itself out in our lives. Here's the first thing I want you to see regarding the environment. The heavens and the earth are the creative products of God. The heavens and the earth are, are the creative products of God. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So contrary to evolutionary theory, the Bible here emphatically declares that God created all that there is. You believe that this morning, right? You believe that God created. You believe that, that the reason that we woke up this morning and there's a sun shining in the east is because God created and put that sun there, that star there, that it warms us, that it, that it dictates everything that happens in our seasons and temperatures and climates and all of that is dictated by the sun that the God put there. He created all that there is. It's a beautiful thing as you read through Genesis chapter 1 and you see God doing these things and creating these things. The galaxies and the stars within the universe, they didn't accidentally just come into existence out of some sort of big bang or some sort of explosion and began to, to move away from one another. You know, the scientists tell us that the universe is expanding. I don't understand how they know that. I don't understand how you measure that. But that's what scientists are telling they're saying that the universe is expanding. And we know from astronomers and, and other scientists that study the heavens, we know that galaxies are formed of millions, if not billions, of stars. We know that each of those galaxies is billions of light years from other galaxies. And you think about the expanse of the heavens, it's absolutely phenomenal. And that didn't just happen. God created it. God spoke, and it came into existence. But that's not what the evolutionists tell us. That's not what the naturalistic mindset tells us. The problem with evolution is that it has no answer for the existence of anything. Many of them would argue for some sort of big bang moment that, that something collided and what is in existence today formed and has been evolving since then. The problem with that evolutionary theory, and I don't have time to go in all of that, but it has no answer for the first mover. What were these two things that collided that brought everything into existence? How did they come into existence? Who created those things that came together and birth all that there is. And so evolution has a lot of holes in its theory, and this is just one of the, the major ones. And so it has no answer for the first mover who brings things into existence. But the Bible, on the other hand, details how God spoke and the heavens erupted with light as stars, galaxies, planets, and moons were all formed. God spoke and the earth was created. It was central in his creative activity. How do you know that, Pastor? Well, if you go down, you don't get to the, the, to the stars and galaxies and those things till day four, and yet the earth is day one, day two, day three. Sometimes um, I was asked, I think one of my kids the other day asked me about aliens. I was like, well, 
I personally don't believe there's aliens, and I think I have a pretty biblical strong answer for that, but we've never discovered them. This is sci-fi stuff. But if you look at the creation account, Earth is the center of creation. Now, we're no, we know we're not the center of the universe, but we are absolutely, according to what I read in Genesis 1, the center of God's creation. We are the object of his affection. And so God spoke, and life was created on earth. And his creation is incredibly diverse with all kinds of plants and animals and birds and insects. All of these species so diverse within creation. Isn't it beautiful? Don't you love how you can travel around the world? You can even travel around the state of Virginia and see different things growing in different parts. Different types of rock forms. Different types of, uh, of uh, uh, what do you call it? I know we got Piedmont and, and I'm... You, you studied this this year. You need to help me here with these terms. I'm, I'm drawing a blank here. But you get different areas of, of just the way things are. You got Tidewater, Piedmont. You got mountains, whatever that stuff is called. I mean, the Lord is beautiful in how he created all that there is. All of those things, think about it. They work together in a biodiverse harmony. It didn't just happen. God created the heavens and the earth through the product of his creative activity. Second truth, every aspect of creation has intrinsic and divinely granted value. Wrestle with that statement for a second. Every aspect of creation has intrinsic, deep-seated, divinely granted value. Now, when you're sitting outside on your patio tonight and it's hot and humid and that pesky mosquito flies up on your arm, how much value do you want to grant that little sucker? About as much as it takes to splat him against your shoulder. And yet, if we read our Bibles correctly, everything has value. Who wants to place mosquitoes? Who wants to place snakes and jellyfish in that category of value? But according to the Bible, these and others like them are the result of the creative work of God. Again, I'm going to point to what Gordon Wilson shares in his book. He says that predators, parasites, and pathogens were perfectly benign in every respect prior to the fall. He says they were most likely genetically front-loaded by God with exquisitely designed weapon systems, but benign. I've often wondered about that. Like when the fall happened in Genesis 3, did God take some animals and transform them as part of the curse? I don't know if Gordon Wilson's right or not. He's saying that he didn't have to do anything because they already were front-loaded with certain characteristics that now in the, in the, because of the fall, the consequences, no longer are they benign, now they're predatorial. I don't know what's the case. We do know that it seems like, what we read in Scripture, that when he cursed the snake, his curse was to slither on his belly for the rest of his life, so he must have had legs prior to that. We don't know anything else. Regardless, all of these creatures have value because God created them. Every aspect of creation is found in God's proclamation that we, what he made was good. So there's absolute value in what exempts simply because God made it and he declared it to be good. That leads us to a third truth. Man was commanded to exercise godly dominion over creation. That's verse 28. He's commanded here to take godly dominion over all that created, the birds, the fish, the animals. Everything in creation is charged to him. This is the foundational command 
behind conservation. And it's the underlying reason for it's God's own for it is God's own evaluation of his work. In other words, when we talk about conservation and we talk about taking care of the environment, we do so because God created it, he declared it's good, and he entrusted it, entrusted it to us. We're the image bearers of God, the ones responsible to work, keep, and to make fruitful all that God created. Here, I want you to think about this. If it's not you and I, to do that, what species on this planet is going to steward creation? What species is going to do and be able to do what we're supposed to do? I mean, we alone are like God. Again, not God, but somewhat divine. We, like Him, are creative builders. Think about that for a minute. We, as human beings, are super creative. Some more creative than others, but as human beings, we are super creative super uh, uh, gifted to build and, and to have intuition and intellect and logic and all of the things that we need to, to do what we do. We see some of this in the animal world or in the insect world. You go outside and you begin to look at the, the ants that are scurrying around. If we were to be able to dig down and look under the ground at what they have created, they are incredible builders. Ants are always working, right? Proverbs even talks about how ants are always working. They're always diligent. They're always going and getting food and, and bringing it into the house. We've had a few of those creatures enter our house yesterday and found them yesterday morning around the coffee pot. So um, we put out some, I exercise my divine authority given to God to exterminate those little boogers in my house. And we're working toward that with some, some stuff. But they're great builders, Birds are like that. Birds build incredible nests. I, I think I've mentioned before as an illustration. There's a certain kind of bird, I'm not sure what it is, it always builds in the same exact spot underneath my deck. Drives me nuts because it's a mud nest. It's not like it's just grass and things. No, he gets mud or she gets mud and, and brings all that, just makes this huge thing. But it's incredible that this little bitty bird without hands and thumbs can do that. Beavers are great builders, right? If you own land, anybody's been around, you, you hunt a piece of land and, and, and you get a beaver in there or a pack of beavers or whatever a herd of beavers is called, a family of beavers, you get them in there and work in that stream, they will build a dam and it will just destroy the land that the farmer or the hunters are trying to preserve. But they're incredible. They can go out and cut sticks and drag those sticks up and they've, God's given them these, these teeth that can chew into bark and chew into wood. And I mean, they can do more with their teeth than we could ever do with an axe. They'll drag those sticks and lumber and they'll build this, this great dam. They'll back up the water and they can swim and eat and do all the things that they're, they're incredible builders. But all of these and many other examples, they're one-hit wonders. They only do that one thing. The bird builds that nest. The ant does what he does under the ground. The beaver builds the dam. You don't ever see a beaver saying, you know what, I'm not really satisfied with building the dam. I want to build an automobile next week. That's not what they do. They're one-hit wonders. But what does humans do? We're creative. We're intuitive. We're, we're, we're diligent. We, we're able to dream and, and, and come up with new designs and new concepts. We discover new techniques, all to improve upon what has already been built. What have we done? Here's just a few examples. Humans came up with the wheel. We have designed bricks for buildings, microchips. We're putting people in space. I mean, you just look at the breadth of what humans have been able to create. No other creature could do that. 
When you think about the image of God in man, it means that there's nearly nothing that we cannot do. If you read Genesis 11, that's part of the warning God spoke to himself. That's why he dispersed the people. That's why he gave them different languages. Because in their common language, there was almost nearly nothing that they could accomplish. And all of it was evil and an affront to God. But what we see here is that God has entrusted his creation to humanity. It is our responsibility, especially the redeemed of God. I want you to hold that for a second. The redeemed of God, it's especially our responsibility to exercise godly dominion over what God has created. We are to steward it on his behalf. So what does that look like? Let me give you three things, and I'll do so quickly. Number one, as a Christian... I recognize the earth and every species who inhabits it has absolute value because God made them and declared them to be good. So if I'm going to recognize and understand my stewardship of creation, that means I'm going to recognize that everything God's created has value simply because it's created by God and God has declared it to be good. This value then will influence how and what we do with and in the environment. I mean, I understand that God created all that's out there. I'm not going to take my trash and just throw it on the ground because those things harm other parts of his creation. It lessens the beauty of it. I'm going to see every aspect of creation is important and, bi- and vital to biodiversity. Every species and portion of creation has a specific role to play, so they're valuable and good because God created them for the purpose that they serve. I'm going to rest in that value That's placed there. Secondly, as a Christian, my views on the environment must conform to the clear teachings of Scripture, and any ideas that do not are rejected regardless of how I feel about them. We all have our opinions. The question is, how is that opinion formed? From what basis is it created? For us as believers, this book is either true or it's not. It's either true in its entirety or it's false. We don't pick and choose. You don't say, well, I don't like what James says, and so I'm going to just pull the book of James out like it's like historians tell us that Martin Luther did. He, he was wrestling with this works and faith thing, and so he just ripped it out of his Bible. That's not what we do. It's either true in its entirety or we disregard it altogether. So we cannot and we must not believe some portions of Scripture while rejecting other portions of Scripture. The Bible declares that God created the heavens and the earth. They are the product of his activity. We also see throughout Scripture that he sustains them. God sustains his creation. Many environmentalists today are sounding the alarm about global warming, or now it's called climate change. They believe that if fossil fuel emissions are not eliminated, then the earth's going to burn up. First, I personally would, conc- I would question their science because we've only been tracking global temperatures since the, about 1880, 140 years or so. And most environmentalists of this persuasion would probably tell you that the universe is billions and billions and billions old, years old. So if we're only looking at a 140-year window versus billions of years, how do you make the claim that what we're doing is detrimental to the environment. It seems like the, the, uh, the sample size is not large enough. The data at best, I think we could say, is incomplete. 
Second, I would question their arrogance. I've often said this, how arrogant it is of us as humans to think that we could destroy something that we did not create. If God created the world without the help of man, then how can we think that we can destroy it? God is the one who's sovereign over his creation. He either is or he isn't, and the Bible tells us he is. He sustains it. Can we harm the environment in some micro ways? Absolutely, we can harm it. Decades ago, if you were to go out and try to fish in the Ohio River and many of the river systems in America, uh, you would probably catch more sludge and oil and, and things that were discharged by factories than you probably would a healthy fish. But today, because we're doing more environmental things, we understand things better, our culture around this area has changed. Today, you can go to most of the waterways in our nation, and they're clean, and they're fresh, and they're teeming with life. So we can, on a micro level, harm the environment. But I personally do not believe that man can fundamentally and on a macro level destroy the planet. Why do I believe that? I believe the Bible makes it clear that the earth will endure until he ushers in the eschaton and brings history to an end. You know, we're going to go back to Revelation in a couple Sundays. And what you see there is that, yeah, the world's going to get to a place that's going to burn. But it's not because of what we're doing. In fact, what we see in Revelation and other places of Scripture, that there are going to be an increase of natural disasters. There's going to be an increase of, of mudslides and volcanoes and earthquakes and tornadoes and all of these things that, that are natural disasters that environmentalists tell us it is the product of climate change. But I would tell you this morning, based upon the authority of the Word of God, it's not the product of climate change. It's the product of the sin of our human lives. And it's moving us to the place where God's going to bring judgment. So really what we're seeing in these natural disasters is a warning that judgment's coming. We need to open our eyes to that. We need to understand it's God's grace and mercy to open our lives up to His forgiveness because of our sinfulness. Thirdly, as a Christian, I exercise dominion by working and beautifying God's creation. Again, Adam's role was to steward what God had created. The Garden of Eden. Think about what the Garden of Eden would have been like. Exquisite. Beautiful. Everything you could dream of was there. Every food, every fruit, all the things were there for his picking. It was anything and everything a person could hope to enjoy, but it was not finished. Yeah, finished in its creation, but never finished in what it could become. And how was it going to become what it wanted or what God wanted it to be? Adam was going to tend to it. Genesis 2.15, work it and keep it. It's Adam's responsibility. It's our responsibility to beautify what God has created. So Adam here was tasked with the responsibility of working and keeping the garden. He was to make it grow. Now, would it grow in its own? Absolutely. In fact, there's part of God's command uh, to the nation of Israel that they were to farm their land, they were to tend their land, and then they were to have a sabbatical year where they let the land rest, and then they were to come back the next year and, and begin to farm it again. So, yes, things will grow and do grow when we don't actively farm it, but it'll never become what it can be and what it needs to be unless we do it. We're the ones that makes it grow the way it should, fertilizing, cultivating, watering, making it become all that it needs to be. <clears throat> Why was Adam to do this? To bring greater glory to God. It was to become better with each day for the glory of God. You see, what we see in Eden is a picture of what heaven will be like. I want you to think about this with me. 
Heaven will be beautiful and wonderful. The day you step into heaven, whether that's when Jesus returns or sometime before that, the day you step into the presence of God in what the Bible would declare as heaven, that is a beautiful place. But it's going to get better and better and better and better. Why? Because you can never exhaust the goodness and the beauty and the knowledge of God. So every day in heaven is going to be better than the day before. Every day is going to, you're going to discover something new. Every day is going to be more beautiful as what God's created for our enjoyment will get better and better and better. That's what Eden was supposed to be like. And that's what we're to do in this world as well. Our responsibility and our role within God's creation is to enhance and beautify what he has made. We should strive to work for God's glory and the enjoyment of others. So as we take care of the environment, we're not doing it for self-preservation. We do it first and foremost for the glory of God. I mean, Paul tells us that in all our labor, do it for the glory of God. Whether it's you're at the factory and you're on the assembly line or you're in the classroom or you're a stay-at-home mom, you do it for the glory of God. As we take care of our environment, we do it for the glory of God. No other reason. First and foremost, it's for that. The second would be for the enjoyment and the use of others. This means we're not going to exploit Earth's resources just to simply exploit them. Instead, what we're going to do is wisely use them, working to preserve them for future generations. It means we ensure responsible conservation of plants and animals and land. It's important to not overfish the waters. It's important to maintain healthy animal populations. Likewise, it's important to preserve certain lands and water systems. So in all of this, we strive to farm responsibly and maintain forests. forests. We do these, however without enslaving ourselves to the environment. We don't do them out of guilt. We don't do them because we worship the environment. I mean, let's never be said of us, let it never be said of us that as Christians we're tree worshipers or environment worshipers. No, we worship one God and we tend to the environment he has created for our enjoyment and given it to us as our responsibility. We don't worship the environment. We enjoy it. We utilize its resources while working and keeping it. You should never feel guilty about driving a 4x4 truck. I drive one. I love it. I don't think you should drive anything else but a 4x4. When it's snowy outside and everyone else is kind of not going anywhere, guess where I'm going? I'm throwing some weight in the back, and I'm going right down the road. And it sucks some gas sometimes, right? It drinks it like a fish. That phrase has always sounded weird to me. Fish don't drink, I don't think, but maybe they do. But I don't feel guilty about that. I don't need to offload my carbon footprint. I, don't, I just don't adhere to that, those kinds of things. Number one, because I trust in the sovereignty of God. Now, does that mean that I'm going to have a truck that just bellows out black exhaust everywhere? No. No one wants to live in that sort of thing. I was sitting next, yesterday next to a, a diesel that's, that started its engine and was just running there for a little bit, and I was waiting on care to come out of Walmart, and I had the windows down because I didn't want to waste my expensive gas. And so we're sitting there sweating to death, and those exhaust fumes from that diesel is just pouring in the side of my truck. And I'm thinking, please leave, because I need the shade. I'm not moving. I want the shade from these trees. And so none of us want to live in the in, in exhaust-oriented type of world that's hard to breathe in. Some of us were in India a few years ago, and it was so smoggy there, you wouldn't have been able to see the back of this room probably. It was that smoggy out in the city. I mean, he walked around. I called for like a month and a half after getting back because of the fumes. No one wants to live in that. So I'm going to be responsible, but I'm not a slave 
to the environment. I want to conserve. I want to steward. I want to do all of this for the glory of God and for the good of others. There's much debate. Man, i got to close. There's much debate on these issues. Do we go green? Do we not go green? Do we drive electric or fossil fuel cars? Do we tremble in fear every time we hear of a natural disaster in the news? Today, I hope you're thankful that the Bible does give us insight on this pressing issue. Natural disasters, as I said earlier, will increase, but it's not because of global warming. It's because of sin. It's God's gracious way to warn us of looming judgment. It's his way to warn the people of this world that time is running out for forgiveness and redemption. So in my opinion, you should drive whatever vehicle you're comfortable with driving. I mean, if you want to drive a Prius or a hybrid or electric go-kart, whatever you want to do, if you want to ride a horse, be comfortable with it. Be responsible with it. Don't feel guilty because someone else thinks you should do a certain thing or not do a certain thing. Just understand, God's in control. God's given me the responsibility to steward this planet. I'm doing so to the best of my ability. I want to conserve. I want to take care of the planet. I want to be responsible. I want to make it beautiful. But I don't need to be a slave to someone else's agenda. I'm on God's agenda. And after all, now, we don't want to be pre-mill Pete that only cares about the rapture, only cares about the end times, only cares about get people, getting people saved. But we don't want to be that guy. But when it comes down to it, I'm not living for this world to begin with. I'm here for a moment, and it will be dissolved at the end and remade for God's glory. So I'm not living for this world. I'm living for the next. But while I'm here, I will steward, and I will do so responsibly. So what does this mean for us? Well, that it means that I don't need to be guilty, but it also means I need to be helping others to come to this conclusion as well. We want to help others discover the God of creation. In this whole series, I've been trying to lay this argument out that this is not about winning an argument with a person. This is a, a, a way for us to understand how to point people to a better design. When it comes to the issue of environment, I don't need to be enslaved by what some scientists may or may not believe or understand. I want to be enslaved to the God who created all there is and show that great truth, that freeing truth to others who are enslaved. Jesus frees us. Jesus cleanses us. Jesus redeems us. And Jesus is coming back for us. Amen? This morning, if you're not a follower of Jesus, there's great reason you should fear this morning. I can understand why those who are not in a relationship with Christ are so alarmed so fearful about the future. I can understand where they would get uneasy about the, the, the news each and every day when it comes, of, comes to natural disasters and things of that nature. But for those of us as followers of Jesus, we should never be alarmed by that, personally. Because, again, we're living for something else. So this morning, I don't know where you sit in all of this, but if you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to be. If you're viewing us online this morning, maybe the first time, you need to be a follower of Jesus. The Bible tells us that he came, God's son came, died on a cross, lived a perfect life, shed his blood to pay the penalty for all of our sins. So that if we were to simply turn from our sin, trust Jesus, the Lord and Savior, we can be forgiven. For us as believers, we need to live in a life that's responsible, prudent, but free, free of guilt. And help others to find that freedom in Jesus as well. We're going to sing in just a moment. I'm going to pray. Steve's going to leave us, lead us in a song. And if God is speaking to your heart in this area, I want to ask you, encourage you to respond. Respond in faith. Respond in obedience this morning.
Father, I thank you for how your word speaks to every issue in every area of life. And the subject of the environment is no different. God, we rejoice this morning in the fact that you are our creator. You are our sustainer, the one who sustains life. But Lord, even in the face of sin, you're the one who redeems and brings new life. God, I pray for those who might be watching this morning online or maybe even sitting in this room today who've never put their faith in Jesus. They're still, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, dead in trespasses and sins, separated from God. I pray this morning that you, through your Holy Spirit, would lead them to a place of faith and repentance. God, that they would cry out to you and trust you as Lord and Savior. For us as believers, God, encourage us in our walk with Jesus. God, that there's freedom. That We don't need to be put in any particular box outside of the box that you've laid out in Scripture. As we understand who you are, that you're creator, that you're sustainer, that you're good. But all of us can carry out our stewardship in a little different way. So, Father, we thank you for that. Help us to walk in freedom. And God, in that, point others to Jesus. As we sang earlier, Lord, as we experience you, it's not just so that we can experience you. It's so that you can carry us with your heart to those who need to know you. And so help us to do that, even as we engage people in this conversation on the environment. We thank you for this time. God, help us to respond in faith and to respond in obedience, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.